This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, Asynchronous Consulting The Facts About DAX. As you will find, uh, I'm a massive fan of uh, asynchronous consulting. So the shift we're observing here is this notion away from I need an appointment to here's some information I have about my own condition and I would like some professional help with that, please. Patient can ask their question at a time that suits them and the practice can then make a judgment about how urgent that is and the timing of the response. Hello and thanks very much for joining us for another podcast from the Scottish National GP IT Users Group. I'm Andrew McElhinney and I'm a GP in central Scotland. If you find what we talk about useful, we'd love to have some feedback or reviews from you and you can subscribe to the Snug Podcast on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, general practice has been forced to change significantly in the past 18 months. I'm sure you might just be aware of this, but we have managed to maintain a service to our patients at a time when we haven't actually been able to see most of them by relying on a rather old but vital piece of technology. The telephone, the telephone, it's all the latest right. The only electric telephone sensation of the age. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Edinburgh in 1847 and educated in the universities of Edinburgh and London. He later emigrated to Canada and then to America to teach people with defective speech. And it was in his workshop in Boston that he spoke the first recognisable sentence by telephone. Mr Watson, come here. I want to see you. Mr Watson was Bell's assistant. It was the 10th of March, 1876. The man with the passionate interest in sound had achieved something which had eluded so many others. For although experimenters had succeeded in sending musical notes and other sounds over a wire, no one until now had been able to build a machine that could send recognisable words. The telephone had arrived. Thanks to Alexander Graham Bell and, of course, a few other people, remote communication became a possibility. As a consequence of Mr Bell's ingenuity and diligence, it is now possible to speak to people along an electric wire. From the report, it seems that with such instruments in every corner of the country, we shall never have to leave our houses and yet be able to continue with our daily business. But nowhere does it say that inclement weather Amazing as it sounds, conversation can be carried on with ease and privacy without ever having to leave your own home. Yes, I can hear you. There were huge implications. Now, you might think that the ability to speak to people a long way away would have been welcomed by the doctors and healthcare providers of the day. But would you believe... And this is detailed in The Lancet in 1883. Some British doctors were really quite reluctant to embrace this new technology for a couple of reasons. First, there was a danger that patients might prefer a telephone consultation to an office visit because it was not just convenient, but it was cheaper. The editor of The Lancet conceded that the telephone did have some conveniences, but cautioned. The only fear we have is that when people can open up a conversation with us for a penny, they will be apt to abuse the privilege To have a dozen telephone consultations in one day would be a doubtful addition. The fact is that new technology can take a while to be appreciated. I'm going to pose you a question. 
Is the advent of asynchronous consulting potentially as historic a moment of change for general practice as the advent of the telephone was? We're going to hear audio from two of the workshops at the recent Snug Members' Day. In a little while, you'll hear Dr. David Cooper from the Old Marker Practice in Aberdeen. David's the co-chair of Snug. You've heard him before on the podcast. He's an enthusiastic user of eConsult, and he's going to describe his extensive experience of using asynchronous consulting. But first of all, we hear from Thomas Dodd, who's the training partner with Ask My GP, who discusses some of the possible myths around increasing use of digital services. Now, I promise you, if you haven't decided yet, one way or another, about whether this is something your practice wants to start providing, you will learn about all the major issues involved from listening to these two discussions. So, we have a a range of myths around online consultation. Patients won't want to go online. Uh, That's fine for the young and technically able but actually you know if you if you drive towards online consulting you're going to disadvantage a great cohort of patients we hear very often that video might well be the kind of the magic bullet but then in contrast we also hear that well patients will only ever want face-to-face appointments why are we even trying to move them online and i suppose one of the things that we've seen quite frequently is that these myths don't tend to be consistent among themselves so again as i say we'll try and unpick a few of these One of the really key pairs that I see is this balance between patients are going to absolutely hate it. All all that they really want to do is is get in touch with their GP as easily as possible. Whereas conversely, we hear very often that making it easy to contact GPs will increase demand. And clearly, as you'll have heard earlier on, there's some nuances in in how we interpret uh, the data there. The last one uh, that we need to have a a bit of a think about is around the, the nature of some of the online tools available. Uh, Many are indeed transactional and lead to some questions in my mind about how best to manage continuity for those particular individuals. So just by way of context, really, the Ask My GP service, like many others, uh, sets out to shift the balance of the initial patient interaction away from this fairly futile discussion that you might expect patients to have with the reception team around, I need an appointment. Well, what do you need it for? Well, I'd like to see a GP. And the issue with that is that nobody really has learned anything from that transaction. Far better, in our view, uh, to start right at the beginning of the process and find out as much as possible, as easily as possible, what we can do to help the patient on that particular occasion. So the, the one of the silver linings of lockdown is that the majority of the population that we've had dealings with have shifted in their perceptions around how to ask for help from various services, uh, primary care included. So the shift we're observing here is this notion away from I need an appointment to actually look, here's some information I have about my own condition and I would like some professional help with that, please. The way we achieve that in Ask My GP is different from many other systems in the sense that what we do is we ask patients to express in their own words, you know, so a small amount of text, from the patient to express their concerns and their thoughts about how they might wish uh, treatment to proceed. We also ask the patients to express some preferences around the style and the mechanisms of communication that might be most appropriate for their needs. Thinking about this in terms of a, a piece of workflow within the practice, the questions here that we'll be dealing with really fall into three stages. So stage one is the aggregation of information from the patient population. And this can either be online and 
very importantly, addressing one of the myths that we, we touched on at the start, also by telephone. So those unable to use online services may still gain access to primary care in the same way that they've always been able to do. Those patient requests can be aggregated and then assigned, so a process of care navigation, to the most appropriate member of the team uh, to, who, who is then able to provide support according to their professional judgment. So each of the, the groups within the practice, or indeed across a network of practices and other services, are able to respond to patient inquiries in a way that's appropriate to those specific circumstances. The thing to bear in mind with all of this is that at every step of the way, it's a person making a decision. So the patient decides how they wish to communicate with you. The practice can decide who might be best placed to deal with that patient's concern. The individual clinician or administrator involved in responding to that patient can decide how best to respond. So through all of this information that we're going to be dealing with, it's a case of the person making a decision, but we're using the system to keep track of the data. So enough of the, the preamble. Let's have a look at some of these myths and some of the data that we can bring to bear against it. So the first of those statements, patients don't want to go online, I think is quite an easy one to dispel, actually. So the practices using Ask My GP have the ability to offer patients a range of communication methods to make their initial contact with the practice. And what we see in the approaching 60% of patients will make contact with the practice using an online service. A further just shy of 15% of cases typically will be cases that have been made online but have been made online by somebody who is not the patient themselves. So the typical sort of scenario here would be a, a parent of a young child or uh, someone with caring responsibilities for a patient who can't, for one reason or another, access uh, services themselves. The remainder and the evidence for patient choice here is that about a third of patients still decide that they wish to communicate with their GP practice by telephone. One of the features that we observe very often and, and, and the evidence that we get back from reception teams is that because a significant proportion of patients have chosen to use online services, it's actually easier for people who are unable to use technology to get through on the telephone. Fairly self-evident, I would hope from the data here, that if the, you know, if only a third of patients are phoning the practice, then we would expect that the practice phones are ringing rather less often than they did previously. So there's kind of two myths in one here, really. One is that the patient won't want to go online, and the evidence that you can see before you suggest that this simply isn't the case. The other being that by forcing patients online, we're disadvantaging people who, who can't make use of technology. I would argue, in fact, that we're enabling them by clearing the routes that are uh, easier for them to use, uh, because the vast proportion of patients have chosen to use uh, a slightly different route. We were worried in our myths that the elderly might be disadvantaged by the use of online consulting. And I think, you know, to some extent, there's, there's reasonable evidence that would suggest that the very old in society are less likely to use uh, online modes of contact than they are to use the telephone. But I hope you will have picked up from the previous information that enabling access by telephone is actually to the, the, the wider advantage of, of the entire practice population. Uh, the inflection point where use by telephone overtakes use online occurs around about 75 years old plus. 
So even up to 75, we're seeing greater proportions of activity online than we are through other mechanisms of communication. Again here, you know, dispelling perhaps the notion that the elderly won't wish to use online services. Uh, so what we're going to look at here is the notion that video consultation is this, this magic bullet to solve all problems. The use of video, although it increased dramatically uh, at the start of lockdown uh, way back in March last year, actually takes up a tiny proportion of overall activity in terms of the requests that patients make and also, as we'll see in, um, in a moment, in terms of the responses uh, that practices record in relation to those requests made by patients. However, one thing that we noticed at the beginning of lockdown was that the use of attachments, so a photograph of some symptoms, uh, perhaps a, a, an attached piece of documentation, blood pressure checks, that sort of thing would be good examples here, increased highly substantially at the beginning of lockdown and has stayed broadly high. So what we're observing here is that the use of static attachments, as I say, you know, images of, of skin lesions, of rashes, of, of, of symptoms otherwise, are apparently of far greater utility perhaps than the than the notion of a, a video consultation. I think perhaps you know reflecting on our own use of, of video conferencing tools like this it's still a case of people feeling that these are uh, kind of tools that you might use either in a purely social context FaceTime call or in a purely professional context like a conference whereas the interaction between the two there seems to be still a, a bit of reticence about making that link we said previously, you know, everyone's dead keen on face-to-face -face appointments, uh, but even in a busy week, uh, around half of patients here, you know, out of the end of COVID at the moment, uh, saying that a phone call would be their, uh, their, their favourite choice of communication. Something approaching 9% of patients are asking that they would prefer to have a face-to-face -face consultation with their clinician, uh, with around about a third asking for uh, a secure message within the system. What I take this to mean is that patients here are, are motivated by convenience of access, that it's easier for them to receive a phone call, it's easier for them to receive a secure message than it might be for them to make their way into the practice. In the right-hand panel, what we're showing is the clinician's response to those same sets of requests. And the take-home message here being that uh, a greater proportion of face-to-face -face activity is delivered than was requested by the patient. And it would seem to me that patients here are valuing convenience, whereas clinicians have taken the decision based on their assessment of the particular circumstances that a face-to-face -face interaction with the patient would be a, a sensible thing to do. We also see uh, a slight increase in the volume of messaging at the expense of the use of the telephone. And I think one of the observations being that clinicians are experiencing a, a greater complexity of need being dealt with by telephone than they might have been used to pre-lockdown, but we're not seeing these increased volumes of face-to-face -face activity uh, coming back. So there's, there's a notion here that we're, we're drawing patients in for face-to-face -face activity rather than there being this overwhelming patient demand uh, in relation to, I need a face-to-face -face appointment, please. A rather harder one to answer because it's much more nuanced is this notion that with the ease of contact, comes increased demand from patients and there's some I mean, you know the, the students of history among us can go back to I think it's the Lancet from about 1880 something 
which bemoans the invention of the telephone that this will increase demand on GP practices because patients would be able to phone at, at, at will almost. And I think we're seeing, you know, in a way, history repeating itself here. This notion that if we if we open the doors to everybody, well, would it be reasonable to assume that people will simply come through those doors? What I'm not seeing in here is this runaway demand that uh, that you know, perhaps was the, you know, kind of this mythical view that if we make it easy for patients to contact us, then they're simply going to do that. There's some discussion, certainly, you know, observing some of the, the comments made in, in Pulse recently, that the nature of demand in terms of a factor of need within your practice population and the tools with which you control that demand are rather different propositions. So we know full well that some of our practices and practices around the country will deal with the pressure which is generated by patient demand. And through the use of Ask My GP, they have the choice and control to manage that, for example, in terms of setting appropriate parameters around the use of the system. But the point being here, that as we get into those nuances, what we're introducing to the practice is the availability to control the passage of patient activity through that front door. If a practice wishes to have the system closed to new requests for a particular period of time, that's easy to do. That's within the control of the practice. Uh, and in fact, is as simple as flicking a switch. The underlying demand arising from patients appears to me to be a broadly consistent measure and actually becomes quite a useful factor in terms of planning workflow and planning resources uh, within the individual practice. Much less than 20% of patients express any sort of preference around who they are seen by at a particular time, which on one hand opens up the opportunity for flexibility within your practices. So you can choose who is best placed to deliver care to that patient because the patients actually don't mind who they get support from. Also, for those patients who do express a preference, it gives us a chance to make sure that they're getting attention from the person who is most appropriate for their needs. What we're seeing in the data that I'm looking at just now is that in about two thirds of cases, the practices are respecting the requests that have been made by those patients so that the patients are getting firstly good quality service. That said, you know, this notion of is continuity important? Well, I suppose I would argue that continuity is important when it's appropriate. So we spoke previously about whether ease of contact may or may not increase uh, patient demand. And just thinking back to that piece of data, the argument I made at the time and, and continue to stand by is that patient demand is relatively predictable. So we can have some pretty good expectations about what we expect to happen. The point of that is not that that expectation is right or wrong, although of course it's lovely if your forecasts turn out to be accurate, but the point being that actually that's then quite a small step into quite familiar territory around you know models for improvement and in particular applying tests of change and you know pdsa type thinking to the management of your practice so here for example we might take a global view that says well look broadly demand is is fairly constant there are some predictable things christmas for example that affect our perception of that demand within the practice and we can use that then to think about system design, workforce design, and the way that we best support practices. Overall, the, the opportunity here, I think, you know, my perspective is keep your lives as simple as possible. So in our view of the world, 
have your team who are already good quality experienced decision makers both in reception and in your clinical teams doing the jobs that they've been trained to do and be aware of but not beholden to some of the choices that you have in terms of responding to patient inquiries and I guess in summary all of this people make decisions but we can use systems to keep track of the data and information that we use. So I think one of the observations that we've had across lockdown really is that it's been fairly kind to providers of online systems. What we're experiencing is, is patients who are very much more used to using online tools to do things. I don't mean as patients, I mean as, as, as people. So, you know, we hear about booking a slot at the gym. You have to pre-book. There's an online tool for doing that uh, if you want your shopping to be delivered, you can pre-book. There's an online tool to do that. You know, we're all pretty familiar with this kind of stuff. The thing that's changed is that as a population, we haven't been very used to using those sorts of approaches to access healthcare services. And it's clearly rather gratifying for us as a provider, but I think helpful for practices generally that the population is becoming very much more used to using these sorts of tools and techniques to get contact you know, to ask questions. The specific reason that's helpful is that the patient can ask their question at a time that suits them and the practice can then make a judgment about how urgent that is and the timing of the response. So, you know, we've all seen the sort of silly examples of patients who will phone up for broken fingernails and all kind of, you know, ridiculous sort of scenarios. And rather than that patient clog up your phone lines, rather than that patient be frustrated at the speed of response from reception, rather than reception having the job of work to deal with that patient, far better for you to say, yeah, certainly you can ask whatever you like and we will respond in a way that's appropriate. Broken fingernail being a silly example, but a better example here would be cases where a patient's asked a question that might be directed at the wrong service. So the opportunity here is then to apply, I suppose, what we would call care navigation to get the patient in front of the, the best person to help them with their problem. The key to all that, in my view, is understanding that, that demand from patients is not a limitless quantity. You know, it's related to the extent of need within the population. And we know from public health teams that that's related to the size of the population, the age of the population, the affluence of that population. So there is a degree here of predictability and the opportunity to use that predictability to the advantage of practice management to make sure that you're equipping yourselves to deal with that, that pressure in a way that's reasonable and appropriate. Welcome to this my session on asynchronous consulting. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a GP at Oldmacher in uh, Centre of Aberdeen. Uh, we're quite a big practice. I think we're kind of fourth biggest in Scotland these days, two sites, urban and semi-rural. So uh, the reason I kind of tend to put this is I generally say most of these things, if we can make it work, then just about anyone can make it work. And as you will find, uh, I'm a massive fan of uh, asynchronous consulting. So very happy to point why. But I'm very aware of its limitations and it doesn't work for everyone and for a number of reasons. So why? Yeah, so we started way back as the, as the trial, but we, we started because it was free. It was new and I'm always a keen uh, person to try and start something new. But I have to say, from our point of view, when COVID hit last year, it has been a lifesaver. It, it has meant we have kind of managed to safely manage our patient population largely with a huge reduction in face-to-face, -face, but actually offering, I think, our patients a really, really good service. 
There is obviously pushes ahead in the English system, as we heard this morning, um, so funded by them, it's definitely their direction of travel. And to be honest, practices are now essentially being forced. I don't think that's the right idea. I think we should have it if we want it, and we can then use it how we want to do it in our own practices, because different practices will have different wants and needs. But there's lots of evidence now that it's been out and about um, that it enables kind of lots of users around about um, to express themselves more openly. So people with embarrassing conditions or psychiatric conditions, certainly through virtual consultations, lots of evidence now that they can quite often engage a lot easier. The sharing of images much easier when needed, and it's got lots of data control within the various providers. And so sending them by emails, for example, a lot less safe. Um, it allows multi-person interaction. It saves people time. They can do it where time is convenient to them. Again, good for the patient. We'll come back to the numbers as to whether that's good for the practice. And I know there's a lot of debate around about uh, is this just opening an avenue um, of even more um, workloads to us? And the numbers that we've got might well suggest that, but you do need a strategy as to how you're going to kind of handle that. The other bit I was going to say, there are multiple providers, and we are a user of eConsult from WebGP, so quite a lot of this is kind of e-consult based, but I am trying to be kind of system agnostic as well, but but there are lots of other providers. So if you are going to go down this route um, until the Scottish um, procurement process is done to kind of say, well, this is what you're getting funded, then there are other providers. And I suppose each of them have got their own pluses and minuses. So if you are going down and you haven't started, you might want to have a quick look at that. A lot of things they are using it for, but there's a kind of general pattern that largely it's in and around general advice, um, which can be for anything. A lot of administrative help for letters. There's been a lot of vaccination fees that have come in via this. There's been um, a variety of issues in and around kind of work certificates and letters that are people needed, that kind of stuff. But you can kind of see way off the scale, it's general advice, administrative help, and we found it exceptionally useful for Rashid and Sports, and we can add photographs to these kind of things for it. So I suppose our numbers, so, so we've been using this now for five years plus, and um, we've steady stated kind of around about 140 to 180 odd a month um, way back when we started. And as you can see, we're now up to 4,600 over the course of three months. So it is exponentially going through the roof. Again, maybe a, a problem with our um, success. Who uses it? As we would kind of expect and as we've kind of alluded to, is there a kind of bias towards the kind of younger, more um, IT literate, the answer is probably yes, but then um, I suppose if you look at your own age sex solutions in the practices and who consults anyway, is this any different to what we normally do? Possibly yes, there is a little bit less um, in the top, but we've not found any difference over the last um, year, um, year and a half as to the kind of distribution, and it's largely the 20s to the kind of 60s that are using it. So when are people using it? Mondays, so if you are going to implement this, Mondays are most definitely the busiest days because we accumulate Saturdays and Sundays workload into Monday. And with a kind of expected 24 to 48 hours turnaround, that, that does put quite a lot of stress on our Mondays. And again, I'll come back to that a little bit as to how you might want to mitigate that. We're certainly looking at that in the practice. It kind of tails off towards the end of the week. So, so we have top-loaded our consulting now um, into trying to fit all of that workload in. But again, if you're doing this, you probably do want to know these numbers to kind of be able to figure out how you're going to accommodate these in the practice. So for those that are thinking about it, things to think about, um, clinical staff numbers to be able to process them, 
administrative staff numbers again to be able to process them and a few things to consider around about do, do people know how to use their Outlook, their Docman, their e-consult toolbar uh, and that kind of stuff as well before you get into clinician point of view is how do you actually consult remotely because um, not something that any of us I would imagine would have been taught when we were doing um, our GP training so a whole new set of consulting skills and what you're trying to achieve. So getting started if you are kind of thinking about using it I've got kind of three bits, bits of advice is think about your philosophy of use and um, how are you wanting to use it finalize your processes because the time to try and figure out what the processes are are not when you've started using it um, and your patients need to know about it so from an advertising point of view both it's there and how the practice wants to use it and expects to use it that would be my my three big pieces of advice if you're getting started like i said there are different models within um using the asynchronous consulting so you can use it as a totally separate asynchronous consult so basically it's another avenue for people who want to use it to contact the practice and get um, their clinical problems either answered or addressed and that was where we started all those years ago once covid hit we became much more keen for people to use that as the first point of access so so we started actively encouraging at our reception point and via our websites and things to move to the hybrid type model and the fact that yes you could just use it when you want to but actually if you phoned and asked for an appointment we would be trying to encourage you to use it if at all possible and there are other practices and certainly nhs england as we heard this morning are moving towards the total triage model whereby it is the way into the practices for a large number of practices that brings with it uh, a few other issues around, well, how do you manage the people that can't do it or won't do it um, for, for whatever reasons. So we've kind of moved to this e-consult model, so preferred route into the practice, but they still can be in other ways if you want to, and certainly that works for us. So who, who can put these things in? Um, it's designed for the patient and or the parent or guardian, comes in via the practice website, at that point, there is a bit of filtering uh, whether they can be done with self-care, pharmacy or local services, different practices and different uh, asynchronous uh, consulting vendors will have different um, ways of doing that and different abilities of doing that. But ultimately, what most patients come in for is they want to submit a consultation. That then comes into the practice, which we then siphon off some of the e-consults to go to a more appropriate place. So uh, we have worked through optimizers in the practice that will redirect admin type tasks to the admin department and as our new contract develops the physiotherapist the um, pharmacists again they can all be siphoned off to more appropriate places and then once um, once it's actually been done what's the most appropriate way of closing that message so is it by sending a message is it by a phone conversation with the clinician or is it organizing an actual in-person video face-to-face -face appointment or an actual formal consultation so that, that's our kind of flow through the system that we use and the it behind all of that is the e-consult which then comes into a separate admin email account which then needs to be moved into for us docman that's how we process all of them a specific e-consult inbox where all of the clinicians will then focus to actually pick them off and most of the responses are then done via the online message service which we now have installed via e-consults toolbar for us about 85 percent were fixed and completed with an online message by either advice links signposting prescriptions so 85% of them closed remotely. 
10% converted into telephone consults and 5% off-site appointments. The numbers vary vastly between clinicians and certainly the, the newer registrars are much more likely to use the telephone or video or face-to-face, -face, whereas those of us that have been doing it a lot longer tended to actually be happier to finish much more of them with um, the online message and just finish them there and then. Again, something to think about clinician factors as to who would be the best, who not so good or variable and what, what they might be doing. So yeah, so that's our process and practices. How did we get it started? So essentially, it's really important that the patients know that it's there. It, it's in a really prominent place on our website. It's probably the first thing that hits you between the eyes. And we did way back in the beginning send a text message to anyone that was registered just to say the service was available and via our own drug service. It went out on our Facebook pages, on our Twitter pages, and intermittent reminders of new services that come on board. I say we've got the in practice. There's a you can't walk through the front door without seeing the poster, and there's flyers that line around, and our appointment cards all came with e-consult logos and things. So, so we did push it really hard, and uh, we now have a very prominent office of message line that says please use the e-consult service um, in preference, but if you want to hang on, we will get to you and our local pharmacists uh, we provided with information. Variety of ways of getting the patient population to know about it. Just so I, I look at our consultation screens, so this is one that's empty, thankfully. So essentially, these green slots um, are 10-minute appointments that would once have been either face-to-face -face or telephone or whatever, um, but have now been converted into e-consults, and we work at the, the ratio of two five minutes to one 10-minute kind of slot. Very much we work on the premise that this is instead of work, not as well as. So that takes us to they're now in our um, workflow for the clinicians to do whatever they need to do with them. And um, so how do we respond? Let's say uh, our numbers, and we've kept very, very, very kind of good numbers from this point of view, 85% remote closure, which is what we're trying to encourage our clinicians to do, because ultimately, um, if all you're doing is converting an e-consult into either a telephone or face-to-face, -face, that, that loses kind of half of its bonus, to be honest. But we have different um, skills and abilities and and risk-taking abilities into how we will do that. But that, that is our numbers. 10% then get converted to either a five-minute phone call in that slot or told to make up a, a, a separate telephone consultation. If we think it's going to take longer than five minutes for, of information gathering and closure, then that's a please make a telephone consultation. And the face-to-face -face ones, are, or whether that's video or in practice face-to-face, -face are always please make another appointment uh, and the reception staff prepared to make that. The, the other things that we've kind of developed, certainly a lot of our partners, um, we have within our teams an e-consult standard response button. So you will find there is a lot of stuff that is exactly the same questions from um, from patients. Um, and once once you've written a good back pain one, for example, that, that seems to be a good common one with all the links to whatever you would use, whether that's NHS Inform or Brad and Bob's uh, YouTube type videos. Um, once you've got a good thing, our general advice and practice is write it and then save it somewhere. And so we've got within our teams uh, uh, an Excel sheet of administration ones, of COVID ones, of clinical ones, you name it, that we can then copy and paste and lots of kind of dialogue into the actual post-consult messaging and change whatever you need to uh, as such. So, so that is expanding. That, that was way back at the pandemic start. The other thing I, I kind of noticed, there was a great bit from the BMJ on 
Uh, how do you actually do online consulting well? It's a little bit like the neighbour's consultation model for how you do online consultations. So how to put it across, how to make it um, functional, how to make it useful for the patients and things. So uh, if you haven't looked at that and you are thinking about doing this from an online consulting point of view, I would definitely recommend the BMG and informatics staff and online consultations. Grand. So yeah, so that's how it works in, in Obaka. And like I say, it, it has worked very, very well. Um, a few things that you do need to think about three big cohorts of patients. So those who can't complete an e-consult, and there's a number of reasons for that. Those who have started the e-consult journey, and so anyone with a pain score above, I think it was seven, got kicked out until to phone the practice immediately. And I know that is getting worked upon. Um, so you need to have a, what do I do with the people that phone up and say, I've tried e-consult, they said I have to phone it immediately. And then there is everyone else. From a holiday management point of view, coming back to a Tuesday post a Monday public holiday was carnage. Um, I'll tell you that right now. So um, for the last couple of public holidays, we have shut off e-consults over the weekend into the public holiday. And um, you just need to uh, make sure that the patients are aware. So we have switched it off with a big message on the front. We're beginning to have a little look at do we need to do that for um, weekends? We've, we've decided actually hot off the press that we probably are going to switch it off in a trial now for um, weekends just to see if that does make any difference to our Monday mornings. The, the general thing that we're kind of getting from the Eng English cohort that are using it is actually it, it's a workload that is there and whether you pick it up on, on Monday morning, whether you pick it up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning, it's coming to you whether you want it or not. Um, so personally, if you haven't guessed, I am a massive fan. I, I love it. I think it's probably the only way we've survived um, COVID properly with our patient population. But up until the last couple of weeks, we have enabled a 48-hour doctor advice service for the last year and a half, and we have never managed that before. Um, we were two, three weeks before the COVID pandemic. So thanks to Thomas and David for letting us share their knowledge with you. And the videos of those workshops are on the SNUG website. Please do send any comments or questions you have to Alex DeFranco via email. I've put the contact details and the links to the SNUG website in the podcast episode notes. And there you can actually watch the full workshops given by Thomas and David, along with their slides and the questions and answers. There are a load of other good workshops to look at as well. There was much discussion about the digital front door to general practice. And I do think going forward, everybody is going to have to grapple with this issue of what online access their patients are going to want or probably expect in the future. Talking about the future and the past, I discovered a really interesting two-part history of general practice, which is on BBC Sounds, and I've put the link below. You can maybe ponder where we're at now in the overall scheme of things. What will historians in the future say about the effect that the COVID pandemic had in general practice and the delivery of healthcare? We are about to write the future. Any excuse for a clip from one of my favourite movies? Bye. Whatever you make it, so make it a good one.